and welcome to The Gray Area, where I give interviews with developers, talk about gaming news and reviews, and focus on the interrelationships between gamers. My name is Genesee Gray, and this is the 105th episode in a weekly series called Obsidian of the Future. Today with me is Chris Avalone, who is the co-founder, project director, and lead creative designer for Obsidian Entertainment. So welcome to the show. Hey, Genesee. Thank you very much for having me. Welcome. So let's begin with your news of the week. What are you up to? What's new in your world? Wow. Well, that is a good question. Um, I, you know, it's not so much on the gaming front. Uh, I'm actually uh, delving into a whole bunch of random comics that I get from the uh, the comic book store that's pretty close to our workplace. They uh, they came out with some uh, some new titles recently that uh, got me really excited, even though they sound really cliche. There's a there's some new series that I started reading called Rat Queens. Which okay. I actually I actually picked up just because of the title, and then the art was really cool, and then the storyline was awesome, and the banter between the characters was fantastic. So I highly recommend it for anyone that's looking for something new to read. And then um, another uh, comic that I picked up was this. Uh, Something strange called Black Science, which uh, mm-hmm. okay, I was like, okay, that's kind of a cool name. And then uh, the art, the art was kind of different. I'm like, all right. And uh, the whole premise of it is these uh, these physicists discover this uh, dimension hopping machine that promptly lands them into trouble, and then they lose their homing device and then have to hop from dimension <laughs> to dimension to try and get back. So it's sort of like Lost in Space, but yeah. kind of like Lost in Dimensions. Lost and in space some of the dimensions. <laughs> exactly, and the dimensions they go to are freaking crazy. So uh, yeah, that's been. Uh, I'm really happy. A lot of the comic book lineups that are coming out, and uh, I'm looking forward to plundering the comic book store of some more stuff. Nice. See, I always like those because then you have so many possibilities. You know, you can have all the genres because you're jumping from dimension to dimension. Yeah, and you know what? And when the, and when the authors do that and the, and the artists do that, I have to applaud them because they, they put it all in a really tight narrative context that allows them to do basically anything. And as a, as a game designer, I really have to, I have to respect that. Although, Genesee, I have a question for you. Okay. So what is your news of the week? What's going on in your world? <laughs> like, what stands out to you? Oh, my gosh. I always have a million side projects going on. So let's see. Side project of the week. I have a friend who's a new game developer, and we're working on a game together called Splinter, which means at this point, I'm just doing assets for it, like pretty simple stuff in uh, RPG Maker, just changing colors of things and making little 8-bit guys. And it's actually more difficult than I thought it would be. 8-bit is harder than full-on art. I think. Really? Okay. Yeah. Just because, you know, full on art, you can take the time to do the details, even if they don't reduce that well. But, but eight bits, uh, getting shading and, you know, things like that, that are just so simple. It's, it's much more complicated than it appears. Why is it called Splinter? You know, I don't really know. <laughs> wow. Okay. This yeah. sounds like a very mysterious project. Like, you know, if you don't want to share, that's fine. Like, <laughs> man, we can just, we can just talk about something else. I understand. <laughs> Yeah, like you, maybe. <laughs> we'll get to that. I know it has four zones, which have different climates that reflect the dungeons in it, but I'm not sure exactly what the main story is. I think he's not sure either. It's sort of a first that, quick project. That, that does sound like a game designer. <laughs> yes. Sometimes they just kind of Indiana Jones it. <laughs> it's one of those, like, if you do a, uh, a game jam and you're just like, you know what, I just need to make a game and I don't care. I have a week to do it. It's going to come out and it's just like a practice. And that's kind of where it is. It's just the, I want to make some games just to practice making games. So, man, and those game jams, like, it sounds like, you know, even doing it within a week is kind of a luxury because those 24 hour ones, <laughs> like, <laughs> I have seen some of the most insane concepts out of those game jams that like 
are actually hugely refreshing to see. Like there was someone, uh, there was one game jam. Uh, that I went to in England, um, of all places, because you know England, you know they they don't like they really love the colonies over there, um, <laughs> and uh, this this one uh, group had done uh, this one game that was you know based on the 80s, and they just gone full on Predator with it, and it was just such a simple, fun shoot 'em up concept that I'm like, wow, and you know what they they were able to condense that idea within 24 hours and get something playable that was a lot of fun and. You know, a lot of games that I've worked on have taken anywhere from two to three years to get to that point. And that was kind of an interesting uh, perspective to take on game development. So I have was, to uh, wonder about that. Um, there's a place about an hour and a half from me in Philadelphia that does a game jam every Thursday. Uh, they have a game dev night. And they come out with projects, you know, every week on this. And some of the projects I play, I'm just like, how, how does a game, you begin to wonder, how does a game become successful? Because if you're turning out interesting games in a night or, you know, a week or something like that. Obviously not as, as sophisticated as a AAA game or something. You have to wonder what makes like an indie hit. What What is it that makes these games, you know, less successful than some other games? So, uh, my friend, uh, Jason Della Roca, who heads up or either heads up or works at Execution Labs in Montreal, hmm. he had a theory about that. His theory was... It's often really hard to tell, you know, a hit until you have a whole string of failures and you've sort of got a portfolio of failures behind you in terms of what doesn't work and what does work. Because generally, after every project you do, there's some aspect of it that may, may have worked really well, just maybe not in that context. And his thought was just the faster that you can fail and fail repeatedly, until you get to that point where you get that one hit, because like things like Angry Birds, for example, right. like was his, was his test case in terms of like, hey, you know what? Those developers did a number of titles before Angry Birds came out, and they just kept doing it and doing it and doing it until they managed to hit that hit. So his advice was just do as many games as possible and just see what sticks with uh, the public once it gets released. But just don't focus all your efforts on one. Just keep trying and trying and trying and trying as much as possible. And also, uh, I also heard some weird advice. Well, it's not weird advice, but like I was at, at uh, San Diego Comic Con a few years back, and one of the artists there said that sometimes <laughs> the best way to do a beautiful piece of art is to do 10,000 shitty ones first. <laughs> and I think there's probably some truth there. So I think as long as you never stop trying and you just keep putting it out there and keep iterating on it, I think that's one of the avenues to it. And, you know, you really can't keep a good game developer down anyway. A game developer is just going to develop games no matter what. Nothing's going to slow them down anyway. So the important thing is you just keep doing it. I think that's good advice. You can get that little piece. You know, in that painting, that cloud was really good this time, even though the rest of it was crap. Next, yep. time, next time I'll take that cloud and I'll add this wow, that, thing. that bush was really sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know I could draw a bush like that. All right, I'll keep that in mind. I'll put that in the library. <laughs> Bob Ross was so proud that day. <laughs> he, hugged, he hugged himself. <laughs> yes, he did. All right, so you're talking about comics. I understand that you also have done a lot of comics, the Star Wars comics, and uh, even a Fallout comic. So since we're uh, talking comics, let's just jump to that. Comics and games and, oh my gosh, let's see, let, let me look there. You have so many different talents that you're going through here. Majors in English, minor in fine arts, that, that, architecture. That's a, that a very kind way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find that the creative uh, spirit travels all those different ways. A lot of people that kind of you know, do that art sort of gaming. I have interest in, you know, various, all the branches of art. Kind of counts. So how did you get started in comic books? How did you, how did you end up doing this? Doing art or writing? 
Uh, it was writing, and uh, I approached it uh, somewhat um, in a very manipulative way. Um, <laughs> Just put that right up. I, I, I could not actually uh, get any scripts published before I got in the game industry. So what I did was after we did uh, Star Wars Knights of the Republic 2, I had a lot of contact at LucasArts, and I was like, hey, would you guys ever mind if I contributed like a short story script for like, you know, something like your, your Clone Wars Adventures, which had, which had like a spectrum of stories every issue. And they were totally cool with that. And um, I got those published and I had a, had a blast doing those because it was so much different than game writing. I mean, like with writing a comic book script, it's like 16 pages and there's only one plot that you're going through versus characters that could go in five or six different directions and you have to write all those different directions. Gotcha. It was actually pretty simple and fun. So Yeah, but uh, Star Wars is known. I mean LucasArts is very particular about, you know, the whole story of every character and, you know, being true to the to the original and the movies and the cohesion of the timeline and all yes. that. Did you did you have issues and, with that? Um, I had already gotten all those issues out of the way with the game mm. because at that point I'd had to do all the research uh, to actually write for the game and like, okay, here's what George Lucas is thinking about when he's naming characters. Like, here's his double vowel system. Like, here's how he approaches good versus evil. Like, here's what the Rodians are all about. Like, okay, and then like I dive in the expanded universe. I'm like, hey, okay, what what stuff do they add about each alien race and that? And I'd done all the research, even like the horrible like Christmas special for Star Wars. <laughs> All that stuff was in my brain, and I'm like, well, I have all this knowledge that I'm probably not going to be able to use in any, in any other arena. So then uh, I was able to use that for, uh, for the comic book scripts and go, okay, well, now that I know everything uh, about that franchise and the universe, what sort of stories would be fun to tell that I may not have had the chance to tell in an old Republic era? And then uh, just doing it during Clone Wars is a lot of fun. I got you know to, to play around with characters like uh, like Aura Sung, Aura Sing, which was mm. a lot of fun. I think she's kind of a badass. And uh, yeah, and then uh, I, I, yeah, I had a lot of fun doing that. Okay, let me read these titles to you, and then I have to know what this one's about. You have Unseen Unheard, Heroes on Both Sides, Impregnable, Old Scores, and graduation day. What what is graduation day about? Because that's the one to me that seems like they're also like like dark and sort of mysterious, and you know, sound like a giant battle. And you have graduation uh, day. It's interesting you should say that. Uh, one of the scripts that I turned in uh, first before graduation day was so dark they rejected it. Uh, it oh. was. General Grievous's treatise on how to murder Jedi, oh. and he he was walking all his troops through his thesis while he was attacking a Jedi complex. And the editor came back to me and he's like, "You know, this is good stuff, but we just this is a kids' book oh. and we can't publish this." And I'm like, "Okay, well, I totally get it." So uh, what I did was uh, I turned to graduation day, and I'm like, okay, well, for every Jedi that becomes like a full-on, you know, um, you know, officer in the you know Republic, or you know, goes on to be a big hero, there's a whole bunch of Jedi that get left by the wayside, and they're sent off to a farming colony to sort of live out the rest of their years because they can't ever become full Jedi. So that whole story was about the ones that got left behind. And then, of course, the uh, you know the clone troopers come to wipe them out. 
the kids, you know, under pressure suddenly start performing and then they sort of graduate on their own without any sort of the Jedi temple helping them out. And I thought that was kind of a nice way to say, Hey, you know, even if you, it may seem like you, you fail just under the right circumstances. If you keep trying, you know, you can, there's opportunities for you to, to evolve and grow. Well, I really like that. That's a nice uh, premise. And, and I would like to read the other one too, to be honest, but, but yes. All right. Well, let's jump back to the beginning. I just skipped forward a bit. So gaming in your childhood, were you a child gamer or when did you come into the video game uh, love? Uh, so nine years old is when I started doing Dungeons and Dragons, even though I couldn't quite understand exactly how it worked at first. It took me a little while to figure out like all the rules and the classes and get my head around that. Once I started trying to play D&D, I discovered that almost none of my friends ever wanted to run a game. <laughs> okay. So I had to be Game Master, which was pretty exhausting, but it was good training to be a game designer, so I, I'm thankful mm. for that. So thank you. Thank you all my lazy players from Chris Wright to Tweeting. I, I applaud you guys. You guys <laughs> you guys gave me the career that I have today. Um, but another side effect of that was I was hanging out um, with one of the players at his house one day, and we were just goofing off, uh, and, you know, probably just like listening to music or watching movies or something. But then I noticed he had a game up on his Commodore 64, so I asked him about it, and he's like, "Oh yeah, this this game here, it's uh, it's Bard's Tale One, and what you do is it's a." Uh, it allows you to like build your own D&D party and go on dungeon adventures and fight monsters and get treasure. And as he's saying this, I'm like, finally, I can be a player. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I went back and I <laughs> convinced my dad, who's a very, who's a very supportive individual, uh, that like, hey, dad, you know, I think if I, you know, managed to get a Commodore 64, it might, you know, help train me in the the arts of computer programming and stuff like that. And to be honest. It's stuff that I'd already gone through with like the TRS-80 and you know other 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 systems that we'd gotten previously. So we got to sign a Commodore 64. Um, I immediately snagged Bard's Tale 2, playing the hell out of it, enjoying it. Then I went to Bard's Tale 1, uh, and all that was kind of ironic because they were developed by Interplay, and that's where I got my first computer game job with Brian Fargo. So that was really cool. But anyway, I, I played the hell out of Bard's Tale series. Bard's Tale 2, I never finished except by cheating because it was so long and horrible in certain dungeons. And it made, made me really mad for how they designed it. Uh, I played like Bard's Tale 3, like a bunch of SSI games, uh, Ultima. Uh, my magic, and then once I ran out of ran out of all those RPG games at the local game store, then I tried out this one game, Wasteland, that I was kind of suspicious about because it didn't look quite like Bard's Tale. But I was like, yeah, it looks close enough. Like you know, and I I'm kind of like Jones in for something. So I started playing Wasteland One, and I freaking loved it. I thought it was incredible. And that also became kind of ironic because then, uh, like a year ago, I started working on Wasteland 2 with uh, Brian Fargo and like there were some folks from Interplay too. So like it all just comes full circle. Wow. It's pretty crazy. I'm still waiting for the day when we come back to Might and Magic or hopefully Ultima or something like that. But that'd be pretty sweet. But it's amazing how the, the great circle of life just <laughs> yeah. keeps going. So anyway, that's probably a much longer answer than you were expecting, but there you go. No, I mean, I can see it in Neverwinter Nights and Baldur's Gate and things reflected there that kind of feel, you know, like home for those who are tabletop RPGers. Yep. But, I, but I find it's uh, usually quite a divide between the tabletop 
genre and then people that play video games. And there's not as much overlap as you would imagine that there is. It's sort of like its own separate universe. So it's kind of cool that you have this combo happening for you. And I would agree with that. I think it's, uh, you know, sometimes I wonder if it's because it's, it feels like it's harder now than ever to get together to actually have a pen and paper game. And we, we, we're kind of lucky at work because we actually play twice a week during lunch, but that's because mm. we're all there and we all obviously have a number of the same interests. <laughs> so, uh, how do you limit the, that? That could be the longest lunch hour ever. We try and be very responsible about it. And, uh, our game master, Bobby Null, who's the lead level designer for Pillars of Eternity, he's very conscious of the clock and being responsible about that. And he's a, he's a pretty ruthless game master. So, Bobby, if you're listening to this, uh, you are kind of a dick sometimes. And <laughs> he keeps killing my horses. Like, it's the worst. Like, I mean, it's okay if you attack me. Like, it's okay if you kill my character. But, like, when you go after my horse, like, come on, Bobby. That's oh. just not cool. Ugh. <laughs> he gets me so mad sometimes. <laughs> now, do you get, see, for our character uh, mounts, we get really attached to them. They have names and, like, personalities of their own and things like that. If I was getting my mount killed all the time, I would probably just not really roleplay it very well because I wouldn't get attached. <laughs> Uh, I was pretty upset, uh, and to be honest, I didn't have much of a bonding experience with my last victim, which was uh, the this war horse that I'd managed to come across. And I got to be honest, a lot of what I loved about the war horse was the fact it attacked three times around and did more damage than me, which I didn't realize at first until we got into combat. And I'm like, oh my god, this horse is badass! I feel like I'm on a tank. And then and then the goblins, of course, got it and they ate it in front of me. Oh. And I'm like, Bobby, really? And then after that, I, I now, I, 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 I wait for the day when I, when I will GM for him and he, <laughs> he will be attacked by horse creatures that will trample the hell out of him. <laughs> nice. It does come around. Okay. So getting the job at Interplay, can you give me more details about how that happened? Um, you're writing at this point, I guess, campaigns for Dungeons and Dragons or like at what point did you get hired by Interplay? Uh, so I actually never got the opportunity to write uh, a D&D module, although I wrote some articles for Dragon Magazine at the time. The only uh, game systems I wrote for was uh, this <clears throat> this uh, generic RPG system. When I say generic, I mean like they had a, a, a common set of rules across a whole bunch of different like uh, like superheroes and like uh, you know fantasy and horror and mm -hmm. uh, it was called the Hero System. And uh, I wrote some adventures for uh, the Champions line for that because I also had a big, you know, you know, a big, big Jonesing for superheroes too, which you know, is a lot of the reason I also enjoy comic books. Um, so anyway, um, what I promptly discovered is that my dream job of doing that was not something that would allow me to live. <laughs> uh, basically, getting like thirty bucks every month if you were lucky for that work was not enough to survive on. So I eventually asked my editor, and I'm like, hey, look, I love writing for you guys. I really enjoy it. However, if you happen to hear of any, like, steady work that I could, you know, oddly enough, take on the side and keep writing for you guys, I would really like to do that. So my editor at the time, Steve Perrin, who now works 
actually, no, I'm sorry, uh, Steve Peterson, my apologies. Steve Perrin was actually a, a super world author who I, any, anyway, that's what I'm not going to go off into a huge tangent about that. It's Peterson, Steve Peterson, who now works at, I believe, um, uh, game industry biz as a journalist. Uh-huh. And we still have, uh, we still get, inter- we still get interviews with him every once in a while, which is kind of funny. Uh, he said, okay, well, I can check with my friend, Marco Green, who works at Interplay and he heads up the Dragon Play division, which does their D&D stuff. And I'm like, okay, that sounds great. So uh, he got me an interview, uh, and uh, Marco Green asked me a bunch of questions. He's like, hey, you know, if you if you were doing a game based on the Planescape license, like, what would it be like? Like, what do you think would be cool to add about Planescape? So I sort of pitched him how I would start a Planescape story and or, or a game story and he, he was like okay well, that sounds pretty good he's like hey you know what is if uh we have a position for a junior designer you can start we can start you off at like you know start like twenty two thousand dollars a year which for me as soon as i heard that i'm like oh my god finally i'm getting paid like oh my god it's gold that's more money than i've ever seen in my entire life <laughs> um so i came out to interplay and then later on i learned that uh steve peterson had actually traded me for $300 worth of software, which is normally how much Interplay paid for employee recommendations. So I actually <laughs> thought back to the moment where Mark, I saw Marco Green and Steve Peterson talking, and Marco Green had given Steve Peterson a bag of Interplay games that were worth $300 <laughs> in front of me, and I hadn't realized why he was doing it, but then I realized <laughs> he, was, he was paying Steve Peterson off. Now so, he feels really silly. <laughs> but uh, hey, you know, I guess we all, we all, you know, Steve Steve got his games, like Mark got a junior designer. Uh, I was happy. I came to California. I love California. I love working for Interplay. Uh, I love working for Interplay up to the point where Brian Fargo left. And then it became not so much fun because Brian Fargo actually had a vision for the company. And after that, it just felt like it was kind of like, going downhill and downhill until everybody at Black Isle where I was working finally decided, you know what, Um, we're tired of projects getting canceled, so why don't we just go and do our own role-playing games? So, And then I'm now I'm at Obsidian. There you go. You worked on Planescape Torment, is that the part? I did, yeah. I was the uh, the lead designer, and I had the luxury of writing the entire story and many of the characters – before we actually had a scripting team on it to implement it, mm-hmm. which I think helped a lot. And plus it was Planescape. And you know what we were saying before about when you set up worlds that are designed to allow like almost infinite possibilities mm-hmm. just because of how they're designed, Planescape was was like exactly that. Like the TSR guys had said, you know what? why don't we make a campaign setting that encompasses all the other settings and has every other setting and, you know, and fantasy that you could possibly ever think of. And then they're like, and we'll allow it, we'll allow worlds that get affected by your imagination. And if you believe in something enough, it makes things reality. And I'm like, this is the setting that, you know, you crack your knuckles and you're like, where do I get started? And then you just start tearing into it. And Planescape was a, a joy to work on just because of that. It allowed you to do almost anything. Like I, I feel a little bit bad sometimes because it didn't really feel like a D and D game at different points while we were, you know, designing it and setting it up. But uh, the world just allowed so much variety that uh, 
I, I don't think I've ever actually had a world that's given that much freedom before. And I, I was, I was really grateful for the opportunity. I mean, every fantasy story that I ever wanted to tell, like I tell in that, like I tell in that game. And like, it, and it all fit and it all worked. And I was, I was having a blast. Excellent. Now, I read that you said when you're talking about designing this game that you removed character character death as a motive, which I found really interesting because most games that you have, that's pretty much the motive, either survival or death of an enemy. What does that mean when you say you remove character death as a motive? Um, there was a few decisions behind that. The, the, the overriding one was um, Planescape had a lot of design stuff about it, the computer game did, that I hated about other RPGs that I'd played. And one was the idea of your character dying seemed pretty stupid to me because when you died in a role-playing game, you reloaded or you stopped playing. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, why don't we just skip the middleman and just say that when you die, it advances the plot in some fashion. Like you, you either go back to the mortuary or you find yourself in a new, lo new location that thugs have dragged you to. Why don't we make death a little bit more interesting than that? And so that was part of the motivation. And then from a story standpoint, um, it seemed to be a lot more interesting that the player was actually trying to fight against completely forgetting his past and also completely forgetting all the elements that led up to his current situation. And that seemed like a much more interesting motivation than I'd seen in other role-playing games before, and it felt a lot more personal. So that that was kind of like the, the the two reasons that we that we went with that. Gotcha. Now the Fallout title that I'm reading about that I've never heard of before was Van Buren. What what is the story here? I didn't realize there was a unpublished Fallout, and you you actually oh wrote the entire God. story for this. Yeah. Uh. So the, even that's kind of a a tricky thing. So Van Buren went through two stages. Um, what happened was, and this is this, a lot of this led to the, the exodus of a lot of developers from Interplay uh, at that time. One was, we were working on Baldur's Gate 3 at Interplay, which everyone was having a, a great time with. Uh, we'd done about, I think, at least a year of work on it. We had a lot of cool locations. We had, uh, you know, our own engine for it up and running. Like, uh, we had, you know, the, the plot line for that all set up. And then that got canceled. Uh, and yeah, Interplay just like lost the license. So we're all sitting there going, oh, well, that's, you know, great. Cause like it's nothing we did, like nothing the development team did. There was some weird legal accounting error, which, you know, God knows what that was. But ultimately they came to us and they're like, hey, well, we just, we just don't have the D&D license anymore. So we're sitting here with all this great work. And that was depressing. Um, but, uh, but that allowed us to, switch over to doing a Fallout game, which got everyone really excited. Uh, and it had been a Fallout game and a lot of design elements that I've been working on for like, uh, you know, anyway, I think about three years previously. And I'm like, okay, well, I got all the area locations down. Like, uh, I know what, like, you know, sort of what sort of systems I want for these characters. Like, here's how I play out in a turn-based fashion. Like, here's some cool perks. Like, here's what you could do if you were a ghoul player character or a super mutant player character. And then I'm like, well, if we can't, if we can't actually do this game right now, which we couldn't, we didn't have the development resources for it. Um, 
maybe I can run a bunch of pen and paper games at work and get like the future development team involved with it now. So they're familiar with the locations and they're part of being part of the history of the game before we started developing it. So I ran um, two different pen and paper games uh, for the for for the Fallout Three um, at work, and then tested the mechanics out that way, and then. I had this slow realization that because of what happened with Baldur's Gate, that Fallout was probably going to get canceled too. And there was already rumblings about that and a lot of uncertainty. So I'm like, well, we could hang on for another year, year and a half and working on this and get this canceled for some reason beyond our control. Or I could just simply say that it sucks, but this all needs to go in the closet and I just need to go find somewhere else where, you know, design ideas can bloom. <laughs> um, so uh, that was the first stage of Van Buren. But once I left, the the game uh, transferred hands and became, there was a second version of Van Buren, uh, which used some elements of the first one. Uh, like the, I think like the entire city of Denver was very, very similar, for example, to the, the first iteration. Um, and then they just went from there. But then, you know, within, I think, I'm, I'm guesstimating, within less than a year, that, that also got canceled because Executive Row did not want to do a game that didn't have a strong console focus, and, you know, and Van Buren, Van Buren didn't, so that got canceled. And, yeah. And then, you know, uh, then again, the full circle treatment is, you know, you're like, okay, well, I'm, you know, that sucks. I'm never going to work on Fallout again. I had all those cool ideas, and damn it, you know, start kicking furniture around. And then, uh, and then Bethesda, you know, there was the opportunity there to do Fallout New Vegas. And we're like, oh my God, all those, you know, all those Van Buren ideas. We can finally, like, let them see the light. But, like, you know, you know, a number of years had already passed. So we're like, okay, but we can put this different spin on them. So then, uh, so then we did, like, a Fallout New Vegas and I was, was able to bring a lot of that stuff back, which was, uh, which was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised the, uh, I've played one, two, three, and then I'm kind of, I'd say, quarter way through New Vegas right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm getting there slowly. <laughs> slowly. It, it is a big game. It is. It's very open world, definitely. And they're, they're all related in the fact that, you know, they have the same, like, setting and the same, you know, Pip-Boy and Vat system and all that stuff. But there are a number of years apart, I think 200 years apart or something like that between. And the stories are very, you know, disparate, so they don't, they don't really have to necessarily connect in, in a way... So did you find like that to be an issue when you went to write New Vegas? Did you have to adhere to some of the, you know, the the story for beforehand, or is it just like you had to set it in that world, and that's kind of what they expected? Um, Bethesda had a really tough job because Fallout had been off of the public eye for so long that they had to reintroduce people to the world, and I thought the way they began Fallout Three was a good way to introduce you to what life life as a vault dweller is like. And they were also able to take a lot of the exploration aspects of in Fallout 1 and Fallout 2 and then put the Bethesda touch on them, which in my opinion was much superior to Fallout 1 and Fallout 2 because Bethesda knows how to make an open world game. Like they'd done so many iterations of it and they had that style down that that was a pretty good, pretty good fit for Fallout. So, um, that however put the, um, put it on our radar that a lot more people were familiar with elements about Fallout 3 versus the older titles. So that had to factor in to our design pillars for Fallout New Vegas. So we're like, okay, well, what do people like about Fallout 3? And are there elements about Fallout 1 and Fallout 2 that we can bring into New Vegas that will sort of make a complete picture? And we did have some parameters. One was 
we couldn't do anything on the East Coast of the United States. Like we, you know, we just had to work with the West Coast, which, you know, which, which worked for us because I think a lot of the Fallout games were just based in, you know, Southern California because we were there and Bethesda's like in, you know, Maryland. So it makes sense for them to do Washington, D.C. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it was like West Coast, uh, you know, has to be an open world title that uses the same engine as Fallout 3. Uh, we recognize that people really like the idea of a big signature city from Fallout 3. Like, hey, people really like Washington D.C. It's a pretty big landmark for people to go. Oh, well, you know, I remind, you know, I know that I know that in the real world. I wonder what it's like in post-apocalyptic America. So we're like, okay, but we sort of run out of Los Angeles since you know we already did that for Fallout. You know, Fallout One. Uh, now, what other big fun city could we do? And then we're just like, well. Why not Vegas? Vegas is Vegas is fun all by itself, whether nuclear warheads got dropped on it or not. So we chose that and then went from there. And then we did uh, we did some um, some tweaks to a lot of the systems and like uh, some of the dialogue editor stuff because you know at Obsidian we're pretty finicky about our dialogue stuff. We we always like it a certain way. Uh, so we added all that stuff. We tried to flesh out some of the companion mechanics um, and you know introduce some new spins on characters and. Yeah, and then uh, we just we just launched right into it, and then um, New Vegas was born. Considering the Fallout series, I mean, they've spanned a number of years, and you kind of introduced the idea of this post-apocalyptic world. You've got the the shelters, you know, you've got the vaults, you've got this sort of cool, like I, I guess it's 1950s style look to things, yep, and all that. And it's almost like, I guess what I'm asking is, how does it feel to have this world that you've created and this dialogue you've created sort of end up being almost a real thing in the sense that then you've got Bioshock, then you've got Borderlands, like. It's almost like this world is a real world that people are now putting other games in and other characters in. It's, it's, they relate to me for some reason. When I play Bioshock or if I play Borderlands, it feels to me like I'm playing some sort of like, you know, great grandson of Fallout. Yeah, yeah, there's actually a few things there. One is, um, so Fallout got born because Interplay couldn't do a sequel to Wasteland. So they're like, oh, I guess we'll have to make up a new franchise. That sucks. But then they made Fallout, and they're like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> we made a new franchise that is arguably even huger than Fall than Wasteland ever was. So that, that, that actually, you know, as a side, side lesson was sometimes if you can't do a sequel to an established franchise, there's probably a pretty good chance that, you know, you could make a brand new franchise all on its own just by doing a, a spiritual successor to it. And then uh, Fallout very much proved that. So that, that was kind of an interesting lesson there. Um, Are you listening, Ubisoft? Are you listening? <laughs> the, uh, the other thing was it was a huge surprise to be part of the Nuka Break Fallout web series. Notably because the day that uh, Tim Kane and I showed up for like uh, filming, we actually got to go in the garage and see all the Fallout weapons they'd built. Whoa. And then we were like, oh my god, like here's a plasma rifle, like here's a nuka breaker, like here's all this stuff that was created as weapons for the game, but here they are being used you know, for film. And that was pretty crazy. That was kind of a big wake up call. But it's been really interesting to see what other developers and uh, people in the entertainment industry have done with Fallout. And I think it makes Fallout more interesting. Like Nuka, the Nuka Break guys had their, uh, had their web series, like, you know, season one and season two, and they did Red Star. Um, and then 
like seeing a lot of the mods that people are creating for fall you know for fallout new vegas has been really interesting and that had a huge influence on us we were doing like the dlc design for new vegas and then i see i see like larger fallout mod projects popping up all over the place like there's a there's a mod project called fallout lone star which is being headed up by uh uh, an ex-journalist named Christopher Means, who's just really excited about the idea of doing sort of a, a fallout set in, you know, the apocalyptic Texas area, which I always thought would be a really cool location for <laughs> for for yeah. for an apocalyptic setting, mostly because you would never run out of guns. It's all like, the guns, yeah. You you plunder <laughs> you plunder every single car and house and you'd be armed <laughs> to the teeth. But yeah, um and and seeing the the progress that's coming along with Lone Star is pretty cool. And they've got they've gotten some pretty cool uh people to contribute to it too. They got uh, Drew McGee from uh, Ban- Banner Saga. He's uh, he's pitching in on the writing and they've got a whole whole good passionate bunch of folks doing that and just seeing people do that you know based off of a world that you helped you know be a part of is just kind of a way to see new life getting you know you know breathed into it and then and seeing people's different perspectives on that world too i think also adds a lot of new life to it as well you were talking about web series and uh for film and things i i've seen on facebook that you're supporting fallout lanius if, if that's how you say it yes yeah, what what do you think about that? Um I ha- I don't think I'm far enough into New Vegas to find the relationship between the whole backstory of Lanius and the Legion and all that to kind of to I guess marry that to the current game I'm playing, but I thought that the film was pretty neat. Yeah, uh he's hinted about uh, in radio signals and uh through other characters in the game. To be honest, I think one of the uh the the weaknesses in the Fallout narrative structure for New Vegas is that Lanius isn't introduced until much later. Like, and also I think that this, that's kind of the same issue with the NCR president. I think the only figurehead that really shows up prominently in the place that he's supposed to be is probably Mr. House. And, uh, so Lanius shows up really, really late and he's mostly used a big, you know, uh, giant, you know, roving tank for, for Kaiser. And, uh, so anyway, the, the film director, uh, Wade Savage, he really liked the take on the character and the look of the character. And the, I think the, the, the sort of helmet design was done by one of our artists, uh, Aaron Brown. And Wade was like, Hey, you know what? I just want to do a film based on this. Like, I, I like to know what, like, caused this guy to get to where he is. Like, what his motivations are. Like, you know, how he subjugated all the tribes of the East. Like, how he got involved with Kaiser's Legion. And we're like, okay. Well, I mean, you don't even need our permission. Like, as long as, you know, you're not making any money off of it, you can do whatever you want. At least as far as I know, I'm not a lawyer. But he, so then he just went ahead and did, uh, did a Fallout Lanius and, uh, he, he did a great job. And, uh, I was pretty impressed. And I know he's gonna he's doing a um a sequel to that right now which i think is fallout lanius crossroads and if i have that wrong wait i'm so sorry it's just i don't have it in front of me right now but uh yeah he uh he's definitely done a really great job with it and just and just seeing filmmakers do that with a fallout license and sort of give their perspective on it which is really cool and then it's also kind of cool to to see like hey you know that person responded to one of your characters and the look of them and now they got inspired to create something on their own which you never would have thought of to do but they went ahead and sort of carried the torch for it. and you're like wow you know it's kind of cool that the the torch of inspiration just keeps going down the line like that so that's that's kind of a, a huge morale boost to see you've talked about that i guess what you were just saying the lack of united feel at times uh, after a new reno and completing vault city uh you've said that this is kind of 
founded a basis for your game design philosophy. And I was wondering, what is that philosophy? Is it the content supports experience? What What is that? Um, my approach to game design is there's three different disciplines, um, just in general. Um, one is uh, the narrative design, which I'm largely involved with, which is the stories and the characters and, you know, fleshing out the lore of the world and quests, etc. The other one is level design, which is, you know, where all the action takes place. And then there's system design, which is the moment-to-moment actions the players are taking. And in my opinion, system design has to trump everything else. Like, if the player's not actually having fun with the mechanics and the tools of the world from a moment-to-moment gameplay experience, then you're probably doing something wrong. And as such, I've always felt that level design and then narrative design are there to support the systems first. And generally the way the hierarchy works, in my opinion, is systems comes first. The levels, the level designers give a backdrop for those systems to play out. And then the narrative designers come up at the end and they're like, okay, now that you guys have crafted, you know, a fun series of actions, like a fun backdrop for that stuff, what can we do as narrative designers that allows, they sort of gives context to all these things. And there have been games that I've worked on where they haven't followed that methodology, where either like either level design came first or narrative design came first that haven't quite worked out so well. And I think it's important that you get the systems nailed down first and then go from there. Because I mean, I, I you know I, I can only imagine what even a Super Mario game would be like if you didn't make sure that jumping was fun, mm. and then you made sure that you understood exactly how far and how high Mario could jump. Otherwise, it's impossible to build a level in a Mario game until you know that information. And then, as far as story goes, I'm not sure the story in Mario really you know has to be you know that that compelling <laughs> but you know you know but if you did do like a super powerful epic you know mario story i think you'd want to do that after you make sure you can understand all the things that mario can actually do in that game but so anyway that's that, that that's my philosophy on that so then would you say um having described your job that you're just you're you're in the narrative aspect what would you describe that you would do on a game like take me through the process of of your aspect uh, I'm 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 sort of like narrative design in terms of like writing and then uh, like going to the voice actor sessions, uh, doing quest design, uh, and that's what I do on a game specifically. Although I also help out with production aspects because you know being a narrative designer for like 20 years, you sort of know all the mistakes and how long certain things take and probably what the best way is to like you know set up a standards document or you know format you know a companion's dialogue tree and all of that stuff is more producery stuff than necessarily the actual writing itself so I try and help out with that uh, when the opportunity presents itself um, and then I have a bunch of uh, creative director slash owner responsibilities for things like okay well um, you know helping out with designer hiring uh, you know, helping out with more owner level stuff around the company, which consumes a lot of time and things like, you know, helping out with new game pitches, uh, to various publishers or new game ideas to be developed in the studio. And then the nice thing about that is, you know, you can usually get a bunch of designers together and then talk about a bunch of concepts that excite them, work them into a pitch and then see what publishers might be interested in in pursuing them. So seeing everyone sort of get jazzed about that is, uh, you know, is a pretty, it's a pretty rewarding part of the job. (laughs) You're a busy guy. (laughs) 
it's uh, yeah, and you know, I, I I do enjoy being busy. I, I have to confess, sometimes I I think I'd I'd be happier if I was just you know in a sealed vault somewhere with a computer, and then I just could work like for like you know six hours a day, and then you know come out for a breath for two hours and do all the owner and management stuff because it seems kind of ridiculous sometimes, and then uh, and then just go back to writing. But uh, yeah, so. But do you have a science of twenty five? I am not sure I do. I'd probably be trapped in that vault. <laughs> I would never be able to hack open the system so I could use the word processor. <laughs> Let's jump back a little to the founding of Obsidian. We kind of glossed over that. Um, first of all, I have to say, why the name Obsidian? It was reminiscent of Black Isle, which we thought would be something that would resonate with people familiar with Black Isle's work. Also, uh, it sounded cool, and a lot of the other names we came up with did not sound cool. <laughs> Got and lots that's, of that's, that's pretty much reasons. it. I think our CEO, Fergus, would probably have a much better answer for that, but I'm pretty sure the first part of that is right, and the second part of that is mostly my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, five founders and three Chris's. Oh my God, the Chris continuum. Oh. So yeah, people, it's they joke about that, but like it's it's really rough to be in a like an owner meeting with you know publishers, and then they they say they make the mistake of saying, "Oh, so Chris," and then like every like three heads swivel around. <laughs> you know, if you know, oh God, yeah, it's that's a, a juggling act. We're, we're and we're all three very different Chris's. So personality wise, we're all very very different, but we all share the same name, so that gets, that gets interesting. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Now the Fallout series, you have an actual character in Fallout One and Two. You're the most feared bounty hunter in the waste, king of the dance floor, and womanly conquests. <laughs> People yell, "Chris Avalon loves you." What what is that about? So uh, one of the scripters decided it would be uh, amusing to put that in as an homage. And I have to confess, after Fallout 2, another part of my design philosophies is that you don't do stuff like that. <laughs> uh, it, like. You immortalized forever. Yeah, but like it feels dirty. Um, so that, that's the only thing I, I have an issue with. Like the, the whole rule we try and have at the studio is it's inside jokes are okay as long as people can't tell their inside jokes if they're not familiar with the person or what the reference is. Like I, I don't know if that makes any sense. But yes. like when you're so overt about it, like I actually – you know, based on Fallout 2 work, which was, you know, a junior designer going a little bit crazy. Um, and I, I was absolutely guilty of this, if not the most guilty person. Um, when you put too much of that stuff in a game, it feels like you're kind of winking to yourself as opposed to letting the player enjoy the experience. So I've, I've always tried to counsel designers to be careful about doing inside jokes like that because I'm not convinced that it sort of benefits the game experience in the long term. Like, it, there, there have been games I've played where some of the inside joke references are so extreme. You know, this is probably punishment for what I've done. That it, I it just got in the way of me enjoying the experience. Like, and I, and I, and I, after playing those areas and those levels and meeting those characters that were all part of a huge inside joke, I, I just stepped back and I'm like, you know, would that area actually have been more fun and, and like and, and lasted longer in my memory? had they chosen to actually take a more serious track with it and develop more interesting lore that was actually tied to something interesting or profound about the world rather than sort of like doing the the wink and the nod. Gotcha. Some more subtle. Yeah. Easter eggs are fun, though. They are fun. 
I guess that's what I have to ask about Fallout. I'm going to jump to Pillars of Eternity unless you have something else you want to add to that area. Um, New Vegas did something uh, interesting with regards to the Easter eggs where I thought that was fair in that you you could turn them on as an option because some people obviously, some people did really enjoy that and then there were just simply other people that did not. So just presenting it as an option even though it required, um, you know, some degree of special casing for those encounters. Having it as an option certainly wasn't wasn't a bad way to go. So I think that that was that was a nice way to sort of hit a middle ground between those uh, the, the the two different types of playstyles. Gotcha. I see. I find myself stuck in an area for a really long time because I want to complete all the side quests. So you, you know, are Genesee. Are you a completionist? You know, I'm not. I'm not a. Uh, I don't go for the achievement so much, or you know, all that stuff. But I guess I just little bits of things. You know, oh, there's a star sarsaparilla cap. What's that about? And then I'll follow that for a while. And I'm oh, I can't leave this area because I have to do these other five things. I have to learn how to make a fire because she told me so, and I can't find these <laughs> two herbs that I really, really need. So yes, you know, that kind of thing, you know, I could see that you could have a lot of sort of inside quests and and things of that nature that would maybe mean something to someone else, but they're all part of this tiny little quest chain localized area. Yeah, game designers try and be evil about that too. Like it's it's also like a fallout design principle that what you want to do is not only are there a number of quests in every hub you go to, but you always try and make sure that at least two or three of those quests link to other areas. So you're like, ah, okay, well, you know, I, I completed this one quest that took me to this new area but now it's part of a chain that takes me somewhere else and that opens up like three to five more quests which in turn if you complete a few of those and then the whole like domino effect just keeps going and it's all part of a plot just to keep you playing (laughs) well thank goodness for fast travel (laughs) that's all i have to say exactly (laughs) all right so the end of 2012 pillars of eternity which used to be project eternity pretty cool crowdfunded for three million dollars and change at the time, which was the highest funded crowdsourced video game until guess what? Tides of Numenera. Dun, dun, dun. I know. How did you feel about that? That was crazy. Uh, yeah, and then um, I think the end, the end total for Eternity with all the PayPal donations, I believe, was over four point one million, which was insane. Like we, we that we that did not. We did not expect that. <laughs> and then uh, when In Exile did their second Kickstarter with Torment, Tides of Numenera, then that went completely nuts with the, I think, over 4.3 million. And then, like, Torment, like, made its funding goal, I believe, in six hours. <laughs> and then, like, uh, Eternity had done it in about 24 and and then like we were we were like scrambling to try and figure out what sort of stretch goals we should do because like we didn't <laughs> we didn't think that it was actually going to hit it that fast so that was a that was kind of a a, 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 a an adrenaline fueled experience but yeah <laughs> both of those went very very well and um, I have to give kudos to uh, Tim Schaefer at Double Fine for even being the first one to sort of get out there in the big public arena and saying, you know what, why don't I try and get an adventure game funded through Kickstarter? And then that opened everybody's eyes to, hey, wait a minute. You know, if we don't do a game with all these bells and whistles and console skews, which, you know, sometimes we don't want to do anyway, and we don't, you know, and all these bells and whistles, I don't know if they necessarily make the game more fun at all, 
they're just seen as needed, you know, by a publisher or marketing. You know, if we want to do a simpler game, like doing something for like, uh, you know, a, a few million dollars is actually pretty feasible to do on Kickstarter. And then we were like, well, you know, you know, in case there was any doubt that a role-playing game could do the same thing that Tim Schafer and Double Fine had done, then uh, Brian Fargo and in Exile did like, hey, well, we've always wanted to do Wasteland 2. And quite frankly, we're sick of the pitch that we keep trying to give to publishers because we don't even want to do a console version of it. Uh, so they came out and they're like, hey, well, you know, anyone want to do an RPG with us? And then all the backers showed up and then all that money came rolling in. And then on, uh, you know, the Wasteland 2 started rolling and then like the, the beta's out for that. And I'm playing that and having a blast. And then, um, yeah, and then uh, we jumped on with Eternity and then, you know, you know, I guess I guess Fargo had to show that you know, well, you guys, you guys, you guys ain't seen nothing yet. And then uh, then he jumped out there with uh, the Torment one, and then that just you know murdered, you know, murdered in a nice way, uh, the, the the charts there. And then yeah, crowdfunding has been a real wake up call for uh, for the industry. I think uh, the most successful person to use it has been Chris Roberts with Star Citizen. Oh, I, you know, I, 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 yeah, I can't tell you. I, do you. Do you even know like what the total is now? It just seems so crazy that I, I, I lose track. Like the last thing I saw was like 19 million, maybe about a month ago. And then I hear it's like well over, you know, 20 or 25 or I, I don't even know what the final total is right now, but it just seems like, like if that's, if that's a funding model that can actually be used, like, I don't know what the future means for, you know, the standard publishing model. Like, I, I really don't. That was sort of a wake-up call, I think, for a lot of people and a lot of backlash as well um, for Double Fine, I thought, because people were kind of like, oh, well, you know, you're a big studio. You should be able to find someone to fund this. Why do you need individuals to do it? Blah, blah, blah. And then people started to really see, because even as a player myself, like, I don't always understand the publisher versus actual developer, because a lot of publishing houses, like, you know, EA or Bethesda, have their own you know, development team that's inside of that publishing house that, Correct. you know, you get confused on exactly how that works versus the development versus publishing and, you know, what kind of sacrifices a developer has to make in order to get something published and the sort of circular effect of that. So I think it made people more aware maybe of that fact. But there was a lot of, uh, you know, grumbling from the community as well and then people that were fighting inside. And I think it was illuminating in a lot of ways too. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, you know, to be fair, a lot of the publishers that we worked with have, have actually treated us really well. Like LucasArts was great. Um... They, they always paid on time. Uh, they had a great marketing department. They were always really friendly with us. Our producer was great. Uh, Bethesda was much the same way. And like, you know, I, I know people tend to bash marketing departments like, you know, left and right, but Bethesda had like one of the most well-run marketing departments like I'd ever seen. It did what a marketing department was supposed to do. Like their PR machine was like in place. Like their, their employees were always willing to jump in for a demo or to help you out. And they had like things like marketing plans like and it sounds so stupid but generally what marketing departments are supposed to do is provide developers with you know a schedule of like what events you're going to be going to what you're going to be seeing what sort of demos you're going to be expected to show what the requirements of those demos are not many companies do that um, but Bethesda absolutely does and seeing plans like that combined with their gung-ho personnel was a huge 
you know, a relief to us. And like kudos to, to Pete Hines and, you know, uh, Tracy Thompson and all those folks. They, they really came through for us. It was really, it was really actually a really wonderful experience working with their marketing department. <laughs> I'm actually quite surprised at that. As someone who works with an engineer and a game developer, um, who are very nose down focused, you know, laser focused on what they're doing and not like looking forward into the future or plans or, you know, worrying about social media. Like, I can't believe that a publisher would not have that schedule for you and be telling you like, here's what you need to do. Here's where you need to go. Here's schedule, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, some of the, so just so I can get it off my chest, some of the things that uh, some marketing departments that I've worked with in the past will do is they, they hire folks that either don't like games uh. or don't, don't play games. They can't be bothered to. Um, they also, uh, cannot be bothered to put a plan together for what a, what what demos need to be shown when which is really important for development team like doing a marketing demo can take you down for at least a month like the entire team down for a month getting that thing ready for a show and making sure it's solid and you know you're showing all the right things so to have them to to see the the sort of paradise version of that was was welcome. I just wish that more companies would follow suit because you can cause a lot of problems on a development cycle by not having all that stuff squared away. Gotcha, definitely. Now you're the narrative designer for Pillars of Eternity. Can you kind of summarize the story? Is that something that's out there right now? Oh, I I actually uh, the create uh, that's a that's a good question. I'm glad you asked that. The lead uh, narrative designer for Project for Pillars of Eternity is Eric Fenstermaker. Uh, he did uh, a lot of the narrative design for New Vegas. He did uh, a number of the areas. Uh, he did uh, the companion Boone, and he also did the companion. Um, oh my God! I cannot believe I'm spacing on her. Uh, it was voiced by Felicia Day. Veronica. My God! Wow! I'm my brain is going downhill. Uh, and uh, he did a great job with those. And he also worked on uh, one of our expansion packs for Neverwhere Nights Two called Mass the Betrayer. And he did an excellent job with that. And he is the one who was actually heading up the story for Pillars. And he worked he worked on that story in tandem with uh, the product director and another narrative designer that I've worked with in the past, uh, George Zeitz, who's excellent. And we can't talk too much about the story now. It's actually one of the things we actually don't talk about with Pillars just because we want people to be surprised once they start playing it. But um, I wish I could talk about it because uh, Eric... Uh, has put together something pretty great. Cool. Now, see, I got confused a little when I saw Pillars of Eternity because you know there there's a book um, similar to that. Like I think it's called what is it? Pillars of the Earth, which I was like Pillars of Eternity. Pillars of the Earth. Dun, dun, dun. I know. That is the, the that is uh, uh, Umberto Eco, right? Am I right? Am I totally screwing that up? Oh. I forget how you pronounce his name. It wasn't actually a TV series and a series of books, and I can't remember okay. maybe the other is. But, but considering that you're doing Will of Time, I was like, maybe you're just doing book series. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the uh, we, we went through the whole cycle of names at work until we actually found one that, that, that worked out for everybody. So Now, you're talking about companions reinforcing the story. Um Hopefully not being annoying like Lydia and Skyrim, but uh, <laughs> like Kraya and Star Wars, Nice Little Republic too, things like that. Uh, how does how does that work for you? The, the companions reinforcing the story aspect, because I really do think you know I I spent most of my time in Skyrim just yelling at Lydia and trying to protect her from dying. So um, uh, with campaign design, it's kind of a tricky thing. Uh, First off, there's small ways where companions can make you 
feel uh, like you're having a good ego stroking experience. And one is they don't tend to tear into you about things that are beyond your control. So, for example, <laughs> do they really? Have like, there been like, some that they do? Oh my God! So, like, uh, one issue I have with uh, the Arcanum role-playing game, which I, I there's a number of things I love about it, but like one of the compa- first companions you get is an absolute example of this. Where, like, if you do a critical fail or if you miss with a weapon, he makes this kind of jerky comment. Like, like, oh, way to go there. Oh, and then he corrects himself. But, like, did, does a companion really need to do that? Like, is it really funny after the hundredth time where it's not even under your control? Does, it, does, that, does that really endear you to that companion at all? Like, bullshit. Like, fuck that. Gotcha. The, um, it's a little borderlands that way. They can be harsh. Yeah. So, that, so there's that aspect. What you want to do is, is find some way that the companions are actually helping to bolster you up and like making sure you have a fun experience. They're your buddies, like in some aspect. They may not you know, be the most pleasant people in the world, but, you know, in some level, they show you some degree of respect. They watch out for you. They, you know, they, they, they sort of like, you know, pat your ego in the back. That being said, companions are great because they're always with you. Mm. And that means that if you ever need a compass to point you back towards the story or the story theme, then companions are great for that. Just with their re- immediate reactivity, they can do like bark strings when you enter a new area. They can do a bark string reaction to something you do, and they're like, "Hey, well, you know, if that's, you know, if this, we're really chasing down like this, you know, this, this Sith Lord, then you know, uh, you know, X, Y, and Z, and they can spout that off, and then they can, you know, either when you ask them about that because they're right there." Uh, you can have a conversation about, hey, what's the backstory of this particular, you know, character we're chasing? Like, how does he tie into my situation? Like, you know, do you really want to hunt him down? Like, what does that mean for you as an individual? Like, et cetera. Like, they're, a, they're like this immediate way of giving you reactivity and story theme feedback without you having to place it all over the environment. Like, companions are just, are just really good for that. So that's, that's part of the narrative design philosophy when it comes to guys like that. I think they help you become emotionally invested too in, you know, in the story as well. And, you know, definitely people get attached. And there's something about, yep. you know, especially a single player RPG where you, you get lonely after a while and yep. having a companion there, you know. Uh, and not to, not to sell my profession short, but uh, one of the best companions I ever got never spoke. Uh, and I, I got like dog meat in Fallout 1. And dog meat is just a really tough dog. Like he, you feed him. He joins you. He kicks ass. He's your buddy, <laughs> and he he sticks with you till the end. And I love that dog. I'm like this this dog is watching out for me, and he's he's great in combat, and like he's he's tough, and I, I don't know. Like I I think that there's a lot to be said for letting a player also fill in the blanks with companions too, because like when you have a character like Eddie in New Vegas, you know he's just a little chirpy robot, you know, well to an extent until you get to Lonesome Road, but Having a having a little buddy like that as fire support just sort of makes it easier for you to sort of put, give him like the Wally treatment and go, hey, oh, he's just like a little bundle of emotions and like he's my buddy and he's he's with me and he's got real sad eyes and so I I, th- I think I think there there's ways to do uh, really compelling companions without having without like tons of dialogue and without tons of conversation so I think I think I think that's worth worth keeping in mind. I feel that way about Shadow Mirror for sure in Skyrim and oh, yeah. you know, Journey is basically that based the concept is very much based on that too like the game Journey where you're two companions yourself and a companion and you don't speak the entire game yep. 
So and and the and the fact that you know the the ways that people found to communicate with each other just using like the 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 symbols and then like just you know jumping up and down or tapping the buttons. There's so much communication you can have without using words. It makes perfect sense to the other person. That it's worth exploring avenues like that to do communication between companions and, and players. It's it's kind of it's, it's kind of interesting. Cool. I was really excited to hear Red Eagle Games and Obsidian were going to co-develop the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan. Now I've read the series, and though I love Robert Jordan, about the ninth book, I was really begging for an editor because I couldn't even remember who these auxiliary Wow, you were. thought that after the ninth book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a patient oh, you're person. You're I'm a patient person. <laughs> so how, how are you going to um, kind of whittle this down into a, a simpler game that's, you know, maybe four hours, I don't know, versus... The, the length it could be if you decided to really truly explain that series. I, I, actually, I, I, that's not the case. It's not the answer is not. I don't know. The answer is you do what Brandon Sanderson did, and you take all this huge amount of lore, and you just systematically find a way to uh, set up quest lines and threads and make sure they resolve in a clean fashion. And I think that. Um, like I, I like I don't I don't I don't know the the writing process that Robert Robert Jordan did and he, he obviously created something that that resonated with a lot of people like I mean people there were a number of people that that really loved Wheel of Time um mm-hmm. the the it's just the the impression that I got from it was just that sometimes writers just get lost in their own words and they're not sure how to wrap things up or how to tie up loose ends like. I, you know, George R. R. Martin just seemed to kill people to resolve some, some, some <laughs> yes. which is which is certainly a way to do it. Like that's <laughs> that certainly keeps boredom from setting in. But I just got the impression that that Robert Jordan might have just gotten lost in the sheer complexity of everything that he was doing. And you know, I, I working on some computer games, like I, I completely understand how that can happen. Like Fallout's a big world. Like there's a lot of lore. Like if there wasn't the, there wasn't like the wiki page and like you know Osir's uh, vault wiki to, to go to and then just sort through that information and figure out what every character is and how they factor in like you can just get lost so uh, yeah so i so, so, so i wonder about that but it's just a matter of uh, attacking it systematically having a really good story manager who's not just an editor but like they can figure out you know how long things take whether it's worth pursuing a certain thread what the priority should be for various characters that helps you resolve game storylines pretty solidly in my opinion gotcha gotcha yeah i think uh when you're reading as much as you can be a creative imaginative person and sort of visualize it in your mind there gets to be a certain point where the sheer amount of names not actually having experienced that person you know in real life quote unquote you kind of can't keep track of the complexity of the, the side trails and all the different interactions you know without actually having met that character and having you know more of a solid representation it uh, it is a challenge okay we're getting close to closing now is there anything you wanted to say about the things we talked about or anything you wanted to add um i sometimes get asked uh what's the best way to get into game development uh-huh. and my best answer for anyone who's curious is just there are so many editors out there uh, game editors and engines that people can just dive into that allow you to start creating games right now like it's not so much your education and you know education is important but it's more just the desire to make games and then follow that desire and actually 
make something concrete and playable. And it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be the, you know, made of shining gold. It, just just having a, a series of projects or a project that you did to completion and you put it out there, you have people look at it, play it, evaluate it, that means so much. And if you just keep doing that process uh, again and again and again and don't let anything stop you, you can become a game developer before you even get hired. You may not even need to get hired if you put your games out there. Like you could end up being a success story on your own and then just do the kind of games that you want to do. So don't don't worry so much about trying to get with a larger company. Just make games on your own and see where that takes you. I find what a lot of my friends say that, that the issue is is that they're kind of narrowed into specific areas. You know, let's say that they're a writer, a games writer, or that they're, you know, a level designer. Kind of they have this aspect that they're trained to be. And if they don't have other people around them, like right now what the problem is with my friend is that he's not a coder and he doesn't know how to code. So we're using RPG Maker. But you almost feel a little little like you're cheating, you know, using <laughs> using like a, a, a simple engine like that rather than being able to find the other people that can do those aspects, you know? So um, we have actually hired people based on their mod work. So even if you're not developing an engine from scratch, nor should you ever have to, because that's not the true... The true test of a you know a game developer who's not a programmer, and I, I, I argue that you know if a, a lot of programmers should try and play around making their own engines. Like a, our our technology director is very very specific about that. Um, but from a mod, from a mod making standpoint, just seeing the content that people create and the quest lines, like and from a narrative design aspect, for example, seeing what kind of characters people come up with, how they add more quests to existing world within the, within the parameters of that world um, how they use the engine in different ways what, what sort of what sort of spins they put on quests those things are stuff that we take notice of and we we had one um, one level designer slash world builder uh, Jorge Salgado who was working on pillars of eternity who'd done a complete overhaul to oblivion like he just done it in his spare time. Like he just completely rewrote the world, or at least it felt that way. And he just put his mod up online. Like at like oh, I think over a hundred thousand downloads, maybe more. I probably have that number wrong, but it was a, it was a shitload of downloads. And then he did patch notes and did a second iteration, and then um, he put that out for the public. And then he did a third round of that. And he knew everything about you know the the Oblivion editor. So he came to us for New Vegas and said, hey, I see you have a, a world builder slash level design position open. And we're like, as long as you're not an asshole, which he wasn't, <laughs> you are absolutely hired because you're already doing the job that we're hiring for. Like you're, you are already a world builder and level designer. Now we would just like you to work with us. And he did and he's doing a great job. But that was all due as a result of his mod work and just because he had a passion to do it. And uh, there's nothing really stopping anyone from doing the from doing the same thing. It's mostly what interesting things you can pull off uh, with mods for for a game. That you know, a lot of that stuff's what a game developer has to do every day with the, with the engine set the programmers give you. Like you know, here's the tool sets, here's the engine, go make content for it within these parameters, and that's kind of a game designer's job. Wow, that's a really good tip. I've not heard that one before. I think I'll pass that on for sure, and hopefully the listeners enjoy that. So if they would like to leave some feedback or keep up with the news, they can find me on Twitter at Gray Area Podcast, at Facebook slash Gray Area Podcast, or on iTunes. And where can they find you if they'd like to talk to you on Twitter or the other websites? 
Uh, I have the very imaginative Twitter handle of uh, just Chris Avalon. And if you ever have questions you want to ask, uh, it's been a personal philosophy of mine that uh, if when I when I was trying to get in game development there and when I was trying to get things published, there was very few people that would ever answer my questions or give me advice. Um, now that I'm in the industry. I am more than happy to do my best to try and answer whatever questions you have. So if you want to drop me a line on Twitter, um, please feel free. Uh, I'll do my best to get back to you as soon as possible. Uh, I have a lot of advice I can share about how to approach the process. Just feel free to drop me a line. And I, no question is a dumb question. Uh, I've certainly asked, you know, five million dumb questions in the course of my life. So please just feel free to ask. <laughs> it's, 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 wor it's worse not asking. Excellent. Thank you very much.